0: Now, let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, if you would grab your Bibles, we are in Mark chapter 10 today, verses 17 through uh, 22, 17 through 22. If you're a guest visiting today, we have Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, uh, please grab one, and that is our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have God's word in your hand. As you turn to Mark chapter 10, let me review from last Sunday. We studied a a short piece of scripture, didn't we? It was was only four verses. It was very, very concise, but man, it was powerful. I mean, it, it confirmed a divine truth that I think many of us already knew inherently, um, we knew that God loves children, but the question is what happens to a child when he dies? And we, we knew also, well, yeah, they, they go to be with the Lord in heaven, and, and what Scripture taught us is that what we knew inherently is in Scripture, we just have to unpack it. Um, and that was just such a, a beautiful text. So we talked about this this age of accountability. We We discussed how God holds every child precious in his sight by extending to them a special salvific type of grace until they're old enough to know good from evil. And I I pray that last week's scripture passage really was a a great comfort to those of you who have lost children. And then it will also be a comfort to those as you minister to others who have, have lost children as well, that they are indeed uh, in heaven with the Lord, and you can show them this text um, as to why. Because, you know, it's, it's one thing to say we believe that, but, it, but it's another thing to go, look, this is where it is in Scripture. This is what the Lord says to confirm it. Secondly, the Holy Spirit taught us that we as adults, we must come to Jesus as a child in simple faith as well. Scripture repeatedly teaches us that the way to heaven is to repent from our sins and to believe that Jesus died and he was buried and resurrected from the dead. Uh, Jesus, in doing so, Jesus experienced the wrath of God so that you would not have to. And, And the reason for that, guys, is because sin is that serious. It must be paid for. And contrary to popular belief, there is no stairway to heaven, you know. There's no stairway to heaven based on, on, uh, on your good works. I mean, the stairway to heaven, that may be a really good rock song, but it's lousy theology. And that really sets us up pretty nice for today's sermon because today's scripture passage is, is one that many... Many of you guys know this scripture passage. It's the rich young ruler and and this this story is told in all three of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic meaning similar. It gives us a synopsis of what happened. Uh, Each gospel writer writes the story um, a little bit different. They have a different audience. They have a different theme that they're writing to. All of this obviously is under the the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but when you put all of the stories together, you get a a fuller picture, you get a, a big picture of what happened. So Matthew, he says that this man was young, Luke states that he was a ruler, and Mark says he was wealthy, so that's where we get the title, Rich, Young, Ruler. Now, it is not a coincidence at all that this story follows the narrative of the children from last week. And the reason for that is significant. So why is that important? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him. And he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. No one is good except God. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And and he said to him, teacher, I've done, I've kept all of these things from my youth. And looking at him, Jesus loved him. And he said, well, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. These are the very words from God for us this morning, Father in heaven, this is a well-known passage that you've given to us this morning. And I pray that you, even though it's, it's a well-known story, I, I pray that you continue to teach us the, the deep treasures of your word. That we don't allow the familiarity of, of the story to to, to learn something new, and then to apply that new truth to our lives this week. Because there is, there is a, a great irony here between last week and this week. Lord God, please teach us what that is today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 17. So Jesus... As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up. He kneels down before him, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So two weeks ago, we learned that Jesus was teaching about marriage and divorce in someone's home, and that was across the Jordan, right? That's the area known as Perea. Last Sunday, we saw how parents came to the home. They found out Jesus was teaching there. Um, and they, they bring their children. They want Jesus to bless their children. Well, today it, it looks like Jesus and the 12, they're trying to leave. They're trying to leave this area known as Perea. Jesus is now traveling towards the city of Jerusalem. They're headed south. The reason for that is Passover is near. And Jesus knows that it's time for him to suffer, die, and be resurrected for our sin so evidently here, Jesus and the 12, they're heading out, they got their hiking sandals on, they got their backpacks ready, and all of a sudden this man runs up to Jesus and he just kneels before him. So this is very dramatic. This, this guy has everybody's attention. This man's behavior is, is highly unconventional for several reasons. Number one, Jewish men, they don't run. For a Jewish man to run in the first century, you got to hike up your robe and you got to show your legs and showing your legs in the first century, that was considered undignified. So Jewish men don't run. Um, Number two, it's not customary to kneel before a rabbi. So this man is showing profound respect to Jesus here. And thirdly, he asked this question. He says, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So all you put all three of those things together, highly unorthodox in Jewish culture. Now, there is practically not a single example of, of someone addressing a rabbi as good in any of the Jewish writings. Um, however, there are many examples of God being called good, um, especially like when you look at the Mishnah. The, the Mishnah is the, the Jewish collection of, of oral traditions that were written down. It's not biblical, but it is authoritative. So inside that, you would see that the rabbis, they also called God the good one or the good. They, they wouldn't use God's name. They wouldn't say Yahweh because it was too holy. But when the Jews spoke of someone being good, not God, but just a person, they would always say it in the third person. So meaning, you know, they they would say um, they were speaking about someone, not to someone like this man is doing. So let me get all geeky on you here for just a few moments, because words matter. And we're not seeing something here in the English that's in the Greek. There are two Greek words for the English word, good. One is kolos, and the other is agathos. Kolos, it means externally good, externally pleasing. Agathos means intrinsically good. It's from the heart. It's it's inside, to the very core. It's not external, it's internal. So that's the word that this man uses. He uses agathos. Um, This is a heart issue, so what, what this man is doing, he's appealing to Jesus' very character, the very core makeup of Jesus, Jesus' constitution of who Jesus is. And since Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, obviously he is intrinsically good. So verse 17, he says, Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So the focus of this young man's question is what he has to do. He's hyper-focused on his behaviors and his accomplishments. He wants to build his resume. Uh, He expected Jesus to give him some type of spiritual task, right? Something that's going to guarantee his entry into the kingdom of heaven. So he presumed that Jesus is going to prescribe something that he can do that's going to settle all of his doubts once and for all. Here's the problem. This young man assumed that he actually had the talent and the ability and the money to do whatever Jesus asked him to do. So let's see how Jesus responds to this young man. Verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me Agathos? Now, Jesus's question, it's not rhetorical here. It's like Jesus waits for an answer, but the young man, he doesn't have one. Because Jesus was saying, don't you know that calling me good is calling me God? So in other words, unless unless this young man was ready to proclaim that Jesus is God, it's not appropriate for him to call him a good teacher. Now, we know this man as the rich, young ruler, so let's talk about that. Rich and young, that's pretty self-explanatory. Let's talk about ruler. What what does that mean? He could be an elder at the local synagogue. He could be a ruler there, Um, but he's young, so there, there is a concern with that. The word ruler, it also means that he could just be an influential man in the community, his wealth, his good standing in the community, it would make him a prominent person. People know who this guy is. So in other words, everybody knows this guy, and they would say in passing, yeah, so-and-so, he's a good man. He's a good man. This young man, he's he's climbing the ladder of success. The problem, however, is that that ladder, it's not leading anywhere. Because Jesus taught us last week that eternal life is a gift to be received. You don't earn eternal life. Now, the placement of this story is critical because this is happening right after Jesus' teaching of how adults, how weak must come to him in childlike faith. It's in every synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is not an accident and it's best understood that this young man was indeed a ruler at the local synagogue so the reason for that is because this guy's doing all the things right he knows how to keep all the rules he's very good at that and that's important to know because god wants us he wants us to see here the contrast between the two narratives between this week and last week so all that to say this guy is a ruler at the at the at the church, at the local synagogue, he is the exception to the rule. This guy has graduated with honors. Man, he's got his Doctorate of Ministry degree. He's got uh, he's got a, a minor in business and finance. This man's on the fast track. He's climbing that stairway to heaven. He's doing everything right. This guy—it's like this guy sits under the feet of Saul of Tarsus, but he's not a Pharisee. He's a layman. He's doing everything right. So why does Jesus stop him in his tracks with this question? He says, why do you call me good? So Jesus recognizes that this guy has a fundamental problem with that word. He doesn't understand the word good. He's just kind of throwing that term around loosely. He's superficial with it. So he considered himself good, as most people do, right? I mean, how many people actually believe that they're a bad person? I mean, when you ask the question, are you a good person? Well, yeah. Yeah, man. I'm a good person. You know, I haven't murdered anybody. I pay my taxes. I'm good. I'm not perfect, but I'm good. Okay. It's as if this young man is asking the question, from one good man to another. So he's a good man, and he's going to ask this question to Jesus, who is another good man. He wants to know how to guarantee his goodness, how his resume is going to pay off for eternal life. So he's asking Jesus to remove any, any of these lingering doubts about his moral performance here. Because he, he definitely has doubts. If he didn't have doubts, he, he wouldn't have asked the question. It's as if he considered Jesus this good rabbi that has somehow mastered the secret of spiritual perfection by himself. So he comes to Jesus wanting to know what that secret is. Here's the problem. This young man had no idea that this good rabbi named Jesus is actually Yahweh wrapped up in flesh and bone. The word of God says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Guys, Jesus is the exact impression of God's nature. So you talk about goodness, you look at the face of Jesus. So Jesus waits for an answer, he doesn't get one. So can't you just see this man kind of taken back a little bit? Jesus caught him off guard. He's probably thinking to himself, What kind of question is that? Because Jesus calls him to think about what he just said. So in other words, Jesus is saying here, you know, before you start throwing these titles around, you better think very, very carefully about what the consequences are. Now, the young man should have responded, well, Jesus, I call you good because you are God. And if he would have responded that way, he would have answered his own question. Because the thing that he needs to do is just like everyone else. He needs to repent from his sins and believe that Jesus is God. But see, he, does, he doesn't do that. He just remains silent. The question from Jesus doused this young man with cold water. It's important to note here that Jesus is not being snarky. With, uh, with this young man like he is with the Pharisees. The, Jesus is trying to wake this man up to his, his true spiritual state. Jesus goes on, he says, no one is good except God alone. Oh boy, here we go. See, th- this young man thought that moral goodness was attainable through his own self-effort. He thought that he could achieve this climbing this stairway to heaven, right? Jesus corrects his theology here. Jesus says it's God alone. It's God alone that's the moral standard for goodness, not a human. Now, a little sermon in a sermon. Many people, many religious denominations and, and cults, they use verse 18 as a proof text that Jesus is not God. This interpretation, obviously, Goes against all of scripture. Um, what Jesus is doing here, his statement, he rebukes this man's poor understanding of the word good. And what he does is he redefines it according to God himself. So, this concept of good, it's, it's absolute, it's not relative. Goodness is not a subjective thing. From, from a biblical perspective, you can't compare goodness to anyone or anything. You have to compare goodness to God alone. See, the world sees good as this abstract idea, right? It's fluffy. It's intangible. You you really can't grab a hold of it. Whatever is good is good for you, and whatever is good for me is good for me. They say it's just a concept. It doesn't really have any meaning. So, in other words, the world says that we are inherently good, That humans are inherently good. We all have some sense of moral goodness to us. Here's the rub with that. And it brings us to key point number one. The world sees people as good or bad according to their own standards. But only God is absolutely, perfectly, eternally good according to himself. I know that's a bit long and wordy. But the world sees people as good or bad, according to their own standards. It's really easy for us to compare ourselves to someone who is not nearly as good. But when we start comparing ourselves to Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and Jesus Christ himself, we we may have a problem, right? Just a little. See, God is the standard of goodness. The world judges their goodness according to other people. God defines goodness according to his character, and his character, and this is big, his character is demonstrated in his law. God's character is demonstrated in his law. That's the word of God. The law is precisely where Jesus takes this young man, because the young man's all worried about his behavior. Well, the law is based on behavior. So it's like Jesus says, oh, oh, you want something to do. Well, wait, let's kind of back up here. Let's see how you've been doing, being good according to my law. Verse 19, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. Oh, boy this has turned into a moral examination. So dear friends, don't miss this. This is the kind of conversation that unbelievers might find themselves on judgment day. Because the purpose of God's law in the Old Testament is to show us, to show all people everywhere that we are sinners. See, the law shows sinners how perfectly good God is. And at the same time, how utterly evil we are. And once we realize how wicked we are, because we haven't kept God's law, we come face to face with the reality that we are guilty. We are guilty of all this stuff. Now, the commandments that Jesus quotes from here, it's called the second table of the law, meaning that these are the commands that are focused on the behavior with other people these deal with relationships right in other words Jesus gives this young man the easy ones Jesus starts with the easy commandments the first table of the first command uh, the, the ten commandments are how we relate to God so verse 20 let's see how this young man responds to the second table of the commandments he says teacher <clears throat> let me try that again The uh, young boy was uh, at his bar mitzvah, and at the bar mitzvah, you know, they're, 12, they're 13 years old, the little boy gets up, one of the things that they do at a bar mitzvah is they say, Today, I am a, <clears throat> I'm a man. Verse 20. I can't save it. I'm trying to save it, and I can't save it. Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Notice here that our young man is a quick learner. He did not call Jesus a good teacher. He called him a teacher. So we, we see here that he does not consider Jesus God. Now, obviously, his, his answer is from his own understanding because he had physically not committed murder. He had physically not committed adultery. So can't you just see the, the sigh of relief on this young man? He's like, Whew. Jesus, is that all I have to do? Man, I am so good. Done and done, baby. He says, I, I've done all these things since my bar mitzvah. Since I was 13 years old, I've done every single one of these. Now, it's very interesting what Jesus does not say at this point, because Jesus could have said, oh, dear friend, you are severely mistaken. You haven't kept any of these commandments since you got out of bed this morning. Can't you just see Jesus going, uh, yeah, let me point you back to my latest sermon series. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Let me ask you a few questions. Dear friend, have you ever been angry? And the young man will go. Mm, yeah. Well, that's called murder. Have you ever lusted after someone sexually? Uh, yeah, like all the time. Yeah, that's called adultery. Have your parents ever disciplined you? Well, of course. Called disobedience. Dear friend, that's called sin. You, you haven't kept any of the commandments. You are guilty of all of these things. And Jesus gave him the five easy ones. Even if he had broken only one commandment, it's like breaking them all, right? Because the commandments are like a chain, they're all linked together. And if you break one, you, you're breaking them. The chain is, is no longer useful. It's broken. But Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus does this in verse 21. So looking at him, Jesus loved him. And he said to him, well, you lack one thing. Jesus is being very gracious there. One thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven And then come and follow me. So Jesus looked at him. The sense here is that Jesus searched his face. Jesus looks intently into this man's eyes. He examines his composure and his demeanor. And what Jesus found that this was a a sincere young man. Unfortunately, he was sincerely wrong. He was incredibly naive This man was utterly and thoroughly lost. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay because whenever Jesus meets lost people, he responds with compassion. Jesus knows that this young man, he sees himself as good enough. He's just good enough to get into uh, heaven, to inherit this thing called eternal life. But being good enough, that's not good enough because the law says you must be perfect to inherit eternal life right because god's perfect the word of god says in psalm 18 verse 30 god his way is perfect the word of the lord is pure this idea of purity it's a it's a beautiful picture it just it means that there's nothing mixed in to your life we've got the we've got all sorts of things mixed into our life don't we But the Lord is pure. But Jesus, once again, Jesus isn't harsh with this young man. It says Jesus loved him. Jesus loves this man. And because Jesus loves him, he speaks candidly. Now, when when you look at this text, I don't know, guys. There must have been something remarkable about this young man. Just really rare about this young man. This is the only place in Mark's gospel where he uses that phrase, Jesus loved him. So like a father to a son, Jesus speaks the truth here. Jesus is tender. He is direct. Um, and at the end of the day, Jesus demands a radical change in his lifestyle. This is not hyperbole. This is not a, a parable for the young man. Jesus means every word here, every syllable. Why? Why? Because evidently, selling everything he owned was the only way for him to come into a personal relationship with God himself, which is the one thing that he lacks. He thinks he has a relationship with God. He doesn't. He, he doesn't know God. He thinks he does. He's, he's got this idea who, who, of who God is. God is. God is in a box to this young man. God is just... uh. He's just a little bit more moral than me, right? That's what we tend to do. We, we lower God's holiness, and we raise our unrighteousness. And now we're on, on the same playing field here with God. And, and despite this man's so-called moral goodness and his good reputation, he's an elder at the, at the local synagogue, Despite all of that, he lives in constant sin, breaking the first commandment. The first commandment, don't have any other gods before me. See, he worships the God of comfort. His money gave him extraordinary comforts, along with all the other things that money brings, right? Prestige and popularity. His wealth is preventing him from coming to Jesus, like last week as a helpless, dependent child, which Jesus said was necessary to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So think about this. <laughs> How ironic is the kingdom of God? I mean, the children in the narrative from last week, they possess nothing They have done nothing, and yet Jesus says that the kingdom of God is theirs. This young man who possesses everything, and he's done it all, he still lacks everything. Oh, the irony of heaven. The reason that he has to sell all that he has is because Jesus has determined that's what it's going to take for him to become like a child and believe. See, this man must be broken. Jesus loves this man. And Jesus will do whatever it takes to break him. Jesus says, and then, after you do that, after you sell everything that you have, then I want you to come follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this absolutely mind-blowing. Jesus says, follow me. It's the same command that Jesus gave to the twelve disciples. So, guys, the rich young ruler was just invited to become one of Jesus's personal disciples. Dang! Wow! Seriously, this is crazy. I want you to picture the the world kind of moving in slow motion now, right? All eyes are on this young man. What's it gonna be? What's it gonna be, young man? All eyes are on you. This is the most critical decision you will ever make in your your whole life. This is for all eternity. What's it gonna be? Verse 22. But he was dismayed. He was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving. He grieved because he had many possessions. He was dismayed. The the impact of Jesus' demand on, on on this young man was visible on his face. In other words, his face fell. His sadness was clear from his countenance. It's as if the sky had become overcast with a storm and there was increasing darkness on the man's face. His expression was in deep gloom. This is one of the saddest verses in, in Mark's gospel. He went away grieving. He turns away from Jesus. This verse reminds me of what I would consider the saddest verse in all of Scripture, which is Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. God calls out to Adam after they have sinned. He says, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, well, I heard you in the garden, and um, I was afraid, and I'm afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself from you. And in other words, Adam said the same thing as Peter, right? Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. This young man who ran to Jesus with excitement and enthusiasm, he now walks away from this same Jesus who spoke those words to Adam. He walks away grieved. He wasn't just grieved. He was shocked. He was devastated. Jesus just leveled him with grace and truth. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that Jesus could be so demanding. It was so unexpected. See, this guy was wealthy, but the cost for eternal life was too high for him, even for someone of his wealth. So Jesus's diagnosis of this young man was correct. He wanted God, but not at the price of his gold. So key point number two, obedience, no matter what the cost, brings joy. Disobedience, no matter the comfort, brings sorrow. Obedience, no matter what the cost, no matter what the pain, will eventually bring joy. Disobedience, no matter the comfort and the ease at that moment, will eventually bring sorrow. So the man's true character had been exposed. Jesus peeled back the veneer of this man's life. See, this young man wasn't good. He wasn't as good as he thought he was. In fact, it turns out he wasn't good at all. It's amazing, isn't it? When, when, you, when you bump into someone really hard, what spills out? Scripture once again tells the shocking truth about mankind. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what's good, not even one. So this man did exactly what Scripture says all men will do. They're going to turn away from God because they are not inherently good. And it's been this way from the beginning. Did you know that Paul plagiarized that that text right there? He didn't write that. That's plagiarism. Somebody better tell God he stole that from the Psalms. Psalms fourteen three and and Psalm fifty three three. The psalmist writes about the depravity of man. So, key point number three: the rich young ruler was materially wealthy and spiritually bankrupt. He was materially wealthy and spiritually bankrupt. This young man walks away from the most incredible offer known to mankind to be a disciple, to be a son of the one true living God. He chose to walk away and and seek a second opinion on salvation. Oh, so he's church shopping now, (laughs) right? He chose to to walk away and seek a second opinion on salvation, one that won't cost quite that much. A salvation to where he thinks he can have God and his money. But Jesus doesn't share his throne or his glory. He himself said that no one can serve two masters. I find it fascinating that when this young man asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, that Jesus preaches the law to him. I find that fascinating because Jesus has been, he's been preaching the gospel for the past 10 chapters. Repent for the kingdom of God is is near. So if someone asks us that question, well, how do I get into heaven? How do I inherit eternal life? What are you going to say? I would guess that you would would quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Man, he did this. He gave his one and only son so that you can believe. And once you believe, you're not going to perish. You're not going to die. You're going to have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, but to save it. It's a good place to start when someone asks that question. Or maybe you would show them Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you would believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But see, Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't preach the gospel. He preaches the law. (laughs) Why does he do that? Well, as a general rule, people, they're not ready for the good news of the gospel until they bear the bad news. The bad news is that God's law judges and sentence sentences every single one of us as guilty sinners before a holy God. Guys, we're all on the same playing field here. This is all level. We are all guilty. Unfortunately, many people, they believe that the only qualification to get into heaven is to die, right? Right? How, how do you get into heaven? Oh, I don't know. You die. No. Dear friends, no. Do you? Do you believe that? Do, do, do you know someone who, who believes, like the rich young ruler does, that, that he is just morally good enough to, to inherit eternal life? that God is just a little bit more moral than me. I'm version 1.0, he's version 2.0. He's just a little bit more spiritual. Dear friends, that's not how this works. God is indeed holy. Isaiah 6, he is holy, holy, holy. We're not good enough. Isaiah 64, 6, it is written that all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds, basically all of our good works, they are like a filthy garment. That word filthy garment there, that is a nasty, raunchy, stinky, bloody rag. That's what our good, good works are. So God has leveled this playing field. This is the irony of heaven. We are to do one thing, and that is to come to Jesus in childlike faith and believe that he's good and that he's God. He came to to save us from from our sins. So, dear friends, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is near, and it's nearer than ever before. Jesus is coming back soon. Have you read the end of the book? Have you? Have you noticed that something has clicked over the past year? Are we seeing the depravity of man like never before in our generation? Jesus is coming back soon. And I'm not sure how to process that, but here's what Scripture says. Be ready. Have your lamp full of oil. You be ready. Father in heaven, this is a great irony this morning. It doesn't matter how good, it doesn't matter how young, strong, how much money we think we have, how much talent that you've given to us. None of that matters. And Father, we praise you for that. Thank you that this is a level playing field, that we are to come to you as children, and repent from our sins and believe that Jesus is indeed God. That he came to show us how to live, show us how to die, that he himself died the most brutal death a human being could ever experience. They took his body off the cross, they placed him in a grave, and then three days later, he walks out of that grave, conquering sin and death on our behalf. So death and sin have no power over Jesus Christ, and he gives us that that life, that eternal life, if, if we choose to come and believe. For those of us who do believe, Lord, we thank you for your grace. May we continue to pray for the Verde Valley, for those who don't, who don't believe, who don't know you. As a church, may we do our job and pray for the lost and share with them this good news this morning. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.